This is a sweet passage. It's a famous passage. Pray that today Jesus would be made more famous in the passage. Mark 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Let's pray. Lord, we come into your presence today in all sorts of condition. Lord, physically, spiritually, emotionally, We come into this place and desire to meet with you. And Lord, we recognize that you see the very depth of our souls. You see our physical condition. You see our emotional state and you see past and you see our need desperately to be washed clean, desperately to be forgiven. And so God, we come to you today in faith, knowing that whatever we believe our needs are, you will meet us in the deepest places of our hearts. God, we invite you into the deepest places of our hearts and ask that you would speak your word of forgiveness over us, that you would speak your word of healing over us, and that you would be glorified in all that you say and do. God, teach us today. Lord, we think of our brothers and sisters meeting at churches across Carpentry and the coastlands and the nations. We ask that your gospel would be proclaimed boldly. We ask that Jesus would be high and lifted up, exalted over every other name that is named. God, have your way among your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thus far in the story of Mark, Jesus has been talking a big game. And in our passage, it starts to get him into a little bit of hot water. The religious leaders do not believe that Jesus can do what he is claiming. Thus far, they've been quiet. They've stood by, they've watched, but now they speak up, not vocally, but in their hearts. And in the end of the passage, by the end of it, Jesus demonstrates that he is able to do exactly what he says he's able to do. See, rumors of Jesus, words and his works are spreading like wildfire. His popularity has made it so that he can no longer enter a town openly. It says that he has to enter a town in secret. Something, though, begins to stir in Capernaum. 
People are whispering. People are talking. Rumors are spreading. And Jesus cannot remain hidden. Jesus will not remain hidden. No matter how hard we try, Jesus will not stay hidden for long. The people are talking. What is he going to do next? His authority and his power are unlike anything that anyone has ever seen before. And all of this is leading to this speculation. Who is this man? The identity of Jesus, this hidden mystery of the Christ that follows him everywhere he goes throughout the book of Mark is going to eventually come to a head. But here the tension is building. Who is this man? Is he a prophet? Is he the Messiah? Is he something so much more? And so the people hear that Jesus is in a house. And so they flood to this house and the house is packed. And even outside the door, there is so many people packing, cramming around the place that no one can get near Jesus. But here comes a man in significant need. In real need. He's being carried by four friends. They have got to get him to Jesus. Only Jesus can help this man. He's paralyzed. And while we don't know his backstory, if Jesus doesn't help him, we know his future. He is doomed to beg for bread and food and money. If he has a family, they're as good as dead. And if or worse, sold into slavery. This man is destitute. Not only physically, relationally, everything, he is in desperate need. But there's too many people. The crowds are too big. They'll never be able to push their way through the crowd. Now, in those days, the houses were made with flat roofs that were made of thatch and earth. And there would be a ladder in the back of the house somewhere, typically, where people would climb up to the roofs because um, there was more space on the rooftop than within the house. And so when people came over, when company came over, remember when you were allowed to have company over to your house, uh, they would go up to the rooftop, not because of a pandemic, so they could be in open air circulation, but because there was just more space. And so people would hang out on their rooftops. And so these people carrying the paralytic, they knew, Let's go to the rooftop. So they climb to the roof and they start digging through the roof. Now, side note, one of the questions I can't wait to ask Jesus, who was a carpenter? Jesus, you fixed the roof, didn't you? It's not in the text. We have nothing, like I'm not going to preach that authoritatively. I just believe that Jesus fixed the roof. Mark tells us that these friends go up to the roof and literally in the original language, they unroof the roof. So they go up there and they start digging through the roof. Now picture the scene inside. Jesus is inside the house. There's people everywhere and dirt starts falling on their heads. And they're looking up, what in the world is going on? And then like light starts peeking through and then like hands are coming in, digging out the roof and then faces and like all, like this wasn't an instant. People like, I'm sure Jesus, he either preached through it or he stopped and was, you know, I mean, he knew it was going to happen, right? This is Jesus. So then finally, like faces peek through. Finally, there's a hole big enough for a man to be lowered down on a bed. 
And Jesus looks at the man and he sees past his outer condition and he looks at his heart. Church, Jesus always looks past your condition and he sees directly to your heart. He looks at this man, he sees his faith, he sees his friend's faith, but he also sees a need that possibly this man didn't even know he had. Something far more dangerous than the paralysis. Jesus looks at him and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And we need to take a moment to understand this statement. Because in the church, we talk a lot about sin and forgiveness. But if we are not clear about what each of these things are, what they mean, then we run the risk of that statement, your sins are forgiven, losing its impact on us. We need to be clear about sin and forgiveness. See, sin is any thought, word, or action that does not align with the character of God. Sin is not just doing bad things. Sin is any thought, word, or deed that does not perfectly reflect who God is and what he does. Now, some will say, but we're only human, right? It's an excuse to get away with the the, the mistakes that you made. We shouldn't be expected to act like God. It's it's like expecting a puppy to act like a full-grown adult human. It's not possible, but we need to understand sin in the context of the human story because I think what scripture would say is though now because of sin, no, it's not possible, but it was supposed to be. So we need to understand sin in the context of the human story. Humans were created in God's image in order to represent him and reflect him to the world. All of creation was supposed to look at the way humanity lived and be able to say, this is what God is like. This is what God is like. And so another way to understand sin is that sin is missing the mark, right? Sin is falling short as image bearers. And so the image of God that we were supposed to reflect is is a false one. We're not what God is like. Now, this is not an excuse to say, see, I'm only human, so don't have these expectations of me. Because to be truly human is to be so much more than we are. To be human is far more beautiful, far more wonderful, far exceedingly glorious than what we see in this life. To be human is to reflect God. But we are not what God is like. To be human means to be God's ambassadors to creation. And yet in our sin, we misrepresent God. We do things that God would not do. But also when we refuse to do the good things that God does, this is also sin. When we refuse to be generous, when we refuse to love, maybe we're not mistreating somebody actively, but we're also not helping them in their need. Maybe we're doing no harm, but we're also refusing compassion. These things are also sin. Sin is not just doing bad things. It's also leaving the right things undone. And so sin slanders God as those who bear his image live contrary to his character and his will. And so sin has consequences. 
Our sin separates us from God and separates us from one another. It creates jealousy. It creates distrust. It creates bitterness. And so not only our, our relationship with God is, is hampered, but our relationship with one another is hindered. I remember when my, my oldest son was really young, like re- really young. And we're having one of our first conversations about sin, like father, son, heart to heart. I'm going to teach you about sin. He was probably being disciplined for something. I don't remember what it was. And I said, Asher, there's something inside of us. Sin lives inside of you and it wants to destroy you and it wants to separate you from God. It wants to take you away from God and and sin wants to take you away from mommy and daddy. And he just started bawling. Probably a little too harsh for his, 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 his age. And then I, but I started thinking about it. And isn't that actually the most appropriate response to the reality of sin? Church, there is something inside of you that wants to destroy you that wants to take you away from God, that wants to take you away from God's people, that wants to dissolve your relationships with those you love most and has no fear, no qualms whatsoever to see you condemned in hell for eternity. Everyone should be weeping. That is the most appropriate response to the reality of sin. It separates us. It isolates us. It keeps us from God, his love, his grace, his mercy, and it keeps us from one another. He was still probably too young to hear it in that way, but that's the way it happened. Ultimately, scripture teaches that the wages of sin is death. And it's what we deserve for misrepresenting God. Now, many people may even uh, accept these things to be true, but believe the way forward is just to do more good than bad. As long as we do more good than bad, if I just clean up my life and stop doing the bad things and start doing the the good things so that at, at the end of my life, there's more good things than bad things, then God will have to Accept me. The problem is that even the desire to do good in order to, uh, uh, for the good to outweigh the sin in our life is self-serving. So if I do good just to make things better for myself is self-serving and God is not self-serving. So even when you do that, that is not what God is like. God is self-sacrificial. God is others serving. And so even the good things we do have a selfish and sinful motive often. And the dividing line between a sinner and a saint is not good deeds. The dividing line between a sinner and a saint is the blood of Jesus. Because we are not called to do better. We are called to be forgiven. Forgiveness is choosing to take upon yourself the consequences of another's actions against you. Someone harms you, right? They, they hurt you. You have a chance to make them pay or to receive the wounds and wish them good. To say it another way, sin creates a debt and forgiveness is canceling that debt. There's a debt 
that, that somebody has when they've sinned against you, they've wronged you, and you have the opportunity to force them to pay that debt or to receive the loss. Forgive them by covering their debt. It doesn't mean that you say it's okay. It's not okay. Right? It's never okay. Forgiveness actually requires that you look the wrong straight in the face and experience the depth of pain that it causes. You, can, you, you, you can't say that it's okay. It's wrong. It hurts. But then you make a choice to protect the person who wronged you from suffering the same harm. You choose their good and not their ill. This doesn't mean that you don't pursue justice. It doesn't mean that there aren't consequences for somebody's actions. It just means that as far as it depends on you, you are committed to killing the urge for payback. When talking about forgiveness in the context of sin, we need to understand that even though we sin against one another, our sin ultimately is an offense to God. This is why after having an affair and trying to cover it up by killing Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, King David tells God, against you and you alone have I sinned. Now, David's not trying to downplay his sin. He's not trying to say, I didn't do anything to harm Uriah. I didn't do anything to harm my family or my wife. It was just against you, God. He's not trying to get out of those other things. He's saying that ultimately, at the end of the day, he has slandered God and fallen short of his righteousness. And so who can forgive his sin but God alone? Given all of this, the context of sin and forgiveness, we can understand the scribes' reaction to Jesus' words. They take offense. Jesus has just proclaimed forgiveness of sins. And so they take offense because sin is against God. And so only God can forgive sins. At the very least, Jesus' words are absurd to them. It would be like you taking a baseball bat, smashing up one of these cars and me saying, don't worry about it. I forgive you. I don't have the right to forgive you. Only the owner of the car has the prerogative to forgive you bashing their car. These words at the very least appear absurd. They appear ridiculous to the scribes. They assume that Jesus does not have the right to forgive because no man does. And so they jump to the conclusion of blasphemy. Jesus is blaspheming. He's playing God. The height of slander, not just sinning, but knowingly sinning and lying and saying that he's doing it on behalf of God. He's playing God. See, he has said something that only God is allowed to say. And the scribes are angry about this in their hearts. So Jesus does something that only God is allowed to do. He reads their minds. And he says, why are you questioning in your hearts in this way? And then he poses them with a question. He says, which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven or rise, pick up your bed and walk. But so you may know that the son of man has forgiveness on earth to forgive sins. He tells him to pick up his bed and walk. Right now, let's think about this question for a second. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or pick up your bed and walk? It's kind of a trick question. Jesus, he's a smart one. It's a trick question, right? 
technically, both of these things are easy to say. Anyone can say these things. But it's much more difficult to say, rise, pick up your bed, and walk, because it would demand immediate proof. You can say your sins are forgiven. There's no evidence. There's no change. There's no physical response that would make it true. But if Jesus says, pick up your bed and walk, then something better happen. It is far more difficult to say, rise, pick up your bed and walk. And yet still both of them are impossible to say because nobody has the authority to do either to forgive their sins or to make him walk except for God himself. And so Jesus is saying, if I have the authority to heal this man, then I also have the authority to forgive his sins. So Jesus tells the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he does. Gets up takes his bed, walks out. He was lowered through a roof. He walks out the front door. The crowd that was so thick that it couldn't even make his way through, you just have to imagine are just parting. So confused, so blown away, so glorifying God at what has happened. He walks out in their midst. And the people are baffled. The point is, Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, something only that God can do. And Mark's point to the reader is that Jesus is God in the flesh and he has come to save. Jesus Christ is God himself come to earth to save us from our sin. Maybe you're here today and you don't know what you think about Jesus. That's okay. Entire libraries can be filled with all that Jesus has said and done and different ways to look at particular attributes of his character and and, and what scripture means. All of these things, there's so much to know, so much to learn, so much to understand about Jesus. Sometimes when people are first learning about Jesus, there's this feeling that until they are ready to accept Every single thing that all of Christendom believes about Jesus that they cannot yet come to him. Unless they're ready to accept everything, hook, line, and sinker, they're not ready. But look, this man has just enough faith to approach Jesus for healing. And he gets significantly more than he bargained for. And through that that tiny amount of faith, that tiny understanding that I've heard of what this man can do. If anyone can heal me, this man can heal me. I have got to get to Jesus. That, that tiny bit of faith. He comes to him and Jesus' identity, the fullness of who he is, is revealed to everyone through that sliver of the man's faith. When I first started reading the Bible, I told myself that I was doing it in order to use scripture against Christians. Someday I'll have the opportunity to share my whole like ridiculous story. But I was reading the Bible to to use it against believers. It backfired (laughs) horribly or wonderfully, whichever you prefer. I, I had... 
at the same time as, as, as wanting to use it against Christians, deep down, I had hated the person that I'd become. And so I truly did want to explain away God. I wanted to be able to explain away God and be able to tell all the believers in my life to stop judging me. It's hopeless. You're dead in your sins. Go away. But at the same time, I knew that even if I could explain away God, I hated myself. I knew the things that I was doing, the way that I was living, the things that I couldn't stop were wrong. I couldn't forgive myself. And so I was trapped in this tension of desperately hoping it was true and desiring it also at the same time to not be true. And when I started hearing stories about Jesus from scripture, all I knew was that Jesus was safe. That was it. He loved people that he wasn't allowed to love. His culture told him, you're not allowed to love that person. That person is a sinner. That person is a tax collector. That person is a prostitute. You're not allowed to love that person. And he loved them. And he served people that he knew were going to turn against him, who were going to betray him, who were going to hand him over to die. And I said, God, I don't know how you see me. I don't even know if Jesus is real, but if he is, I know that I can come to him and I'm not going to be put to shame. I'm not going to be ridiculed. I'm not going to be rejected. That Jesus was safe. That's all I knew. And so I came to Jesus in that, knowing that he was a safe place for my sin, that he was a safe place for my struggle, that he was a safe place. And I just came to him. And in that, his identity was unfolded to me as I saw all of my sin forgiven in him in the gospel. Everything changed. Maybe you're here and you don't know who Jesus is. Maybe you're here and you don't know if he's the guy the Bible says that he is, or you don't know if he's the guy that this systematic theology says he is, or that pastor says he is, or this theologian who's given their entire life of, of you know, 80 years studying the Bible says he is. Who cares if you don't know exactly as much as that guy? What do you know? What do you have? Maybe for you, it's Jesus is a safe place. Maybe for you, it's that Jesus heals. Whatever it is, whatever that sliver is, that window is, if you come to him, I promise you, his identity will blow up in your face with such glory and beauty and awe and wonder that you will see him for who he is and you will find that in coming to him, your sin is forgiven. You will hear his words to you, son, daughter, your sin is forgiven. Maybe you're here and you don't know what you think about Jesus, but in what you do think about Jesus, come to him in that and watch what he'll do. He will do a beautiful thing in your life. The story of this man began with a sliver of faith. It was when Jesus saw his faith, saw the faith of his friends that he said his sins were forgiven. And it's through faith today that our sins are also forgiven. This paralytic didn't know that Jesus was going to die and rise from the dead three days later. He could not have articulated to you the doctrine of the Trinity. He didn't know these things. He'd not yet received the Holy Spirit or believed in his heart that God would raise Jesus from the dead. And yet Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. Whoever you are, 
Whatever you've done, wherever you've been, if you put your faith in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. Because we're not saved by the amount of faith we have. We're not saved by our ability to articulate the doctrines of our faith. We're not saved by the quantity or the quality of our faith. We are saved by the object of our faith. We are saved by Jesus Christ and what he has done and what he declares to be true about us, not what we believe to be true about him. He knows you. He loves you. If you put your faith in Jesus, the Savior, then you are saved. This man and his friends believed in Jesus. They believed that if anyone could help them, Jesus could. Not because he knew and believed everything about him, but because he believed that Jesus could help. And in the cloud surrounding Jesus' identity in the book of Mark, this man and his friends put their faith in what Jesus was able to do. And in doing so, his divine identity was revealed to everybody in the room. This man and his friends believed that Jesus could help and they weren't going to let anything stand in the way. Not the crowds, not the scribes, not the structural integrity of the roof that Jesus was preaching under. Nothing was going to get in their way. And so I ask you, what are you going to allow to stand in your way? What is in your way today? Our passage shows different attitudes toward Jesus. Right? The crowds are there to see a show, but they actually interfered with the ability of the paralytic to get to Jesus. They're there. They're there for a reason, but they're in the way. The scribes saw what Jesus was able to do and yet found a way to explain why he wasn't able to do them, why he wasn't allowed to do them. But the friends of the paralytic, they made a way. They made a way for him to get to Jesus. And so who are you in the story? Who do you identify with in the story? Are you the one in need? Desperate for someone to carry you to the feet of Jesus? Are you hesitant to come to Jesus because you're not sure how he's going to react to your sin? Maybe you don't feel worthy of the physical healing that you need. You don't feel worthy of being healed in your physical life because you know that something is off in your spiritual life. Don't worry. Jesus knows. And he's going to take each thing in their proper time. But today he calls you to come to him and to receive. Are you like the crowd? Are you here for the show? Are you here to see something exciting? Maybe you've heard about Jesus and you're sticking around because he makes you feel better about yourself. Are you like the scribes? Are you here so that Jesus can prove himself to you? In your heart, you're critiquing, coming up with reasons why it can't be real. Are you here because you have heard of what Jesus is able to do and you know that he can help? Who are your friends in the story? Those that you surround yourself with. Are your friends part of the crowd looking for an experience but getting in your way? 
the, the influences that you have in, in, in life, even in your spiritual life. The, there's something exciting uh, that's, some, that, that's going on, whether it's in church or in a home group or in some other, uh, some other place in your spiritual life. There's this excitement, but your friends aren't taking it seriously. And your friends are actually inhibiting your ability to go deeper with Jesus. Are the people in your life like the religious leaders? Are they skeptical in the face of the evidence and opposed to Jesus' authority? This is honestly, this is a thing that's happening in the church in America. There is this modern deconstructionist movement that has become very popular in the last few years. And it's people who even claim to be Christians, who think that they are smarter than the Bible, who tell you the reasons why Jesus is not allowed to say the things that he says in scripture, not allowed to do the things that he does in scripture, and not allowed to be the one that scripture declares him to be because they've never seen a miracle in their life. And so therefore, miracles don't exist. And by, after all, we're, you know, we're, we're children of the enlightenment, which disapproves of miracles. And so Jesus couldn't have done that. He couldn't have said that. We need a Jesus that fits our 21st century century Western American perspective. And anything that falls outside of that just can't be true. And these people are influencing believers. Are they influencing you? Are they they're the religious leaders of our day telling us that Jesus' view of sin is offensive, that his sexual ethic is oppressive? that Jesus certainly wouldn't have said that, wouldn't have done that? Or are the people in your life, like the friends of this man, radically committed to your healing, radically committed to see Jesus heal you and set you free? We need radical friends with radical faith, believing that God can do all things and not letting anything get in the way, willing to risk it all to meet with Jesus. Do you have friends like this? Do you have people in your life who will carry you to a rooftop and unroof the roof just to get you at the feet of Jesus? Are you this kind of friend? Are we this kind of church? Do we have people in this church who will tear the roof off just to get people to hear the gospel? Are you this kind of friend lifting your your, your church, lifting your family, lifting your marriage, lifting your friends, lifting them to the heart of Jesus and asking him to heal? This is a beautiful picture of what it means to be intercessors to pray for people. We have an opportunity in the Holy Spirit to pray to God on behalf of those we love. And it's like tearing the roof off and leaving them at Jesus' feet, knowing that he's got them. Are we praying? Are we prayerful friends, praying with radical faith that God actually hears you and desires to answer you? The only way to become people like this, the only way to become friends like this in a church like this is by believing that in Christ there is a radical freedom. Because Jesus didn't just walk on earth to heal and pronounce forgiveness over a few people. He came to extend forgiveness to everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. Even after witnessing the healing of this paralytic, 
the people still had questions concerning his identity. This moment didn't remove all doubt for them. They were still questioning in themselves. And as we'll see, Jesus will continue to do things that only God can do. And the religious leaders will continue to come up with reasons for why he's not allowed to do them. And they would eventually become so infuriated with Jesus that they will attempt to seek his life. They will attempt to kill him because they don't understand him. They don't understand who he is and they would put him to death. Though he never sinned, he received the consequences for our sin. When our sin should have required our death, Jesus took our death upon himself. Because remember, this is what had to happen. Sin is an offense against God and sin deserves death. And forgiveness is receiving in yourself the penalty of an an offense against you. Therefore, in order for us to be forgiven of our sin against God that requires death, God would have to die. It's logically coherent. You sinned against God, it deserves death. Forgiveness is accepting that penalty upon yourself. God wants to forgive you, God has to die. How is God going to die. He became a man. God became a man so that he could live the life that fulfilled all that God required and so that he could die the death that all of our sin required. Jesus is the true friend who doesn't just tear a roof off a house, but whose body was broken, his blood was shed, and the veil in the temple that separates us from God was torn into, and the gates of heaven were blown open, and we were invited in. We were given access to God through Christ's broken body, not just a roof, through his very own life. And he claimed to have authority, to forgive sins by telling the paralytic to rise and walk. But three days after he died, it was proven beyond a shadow of a doubt when Jesus rose and walked out of the tomb. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth to heal and to forgive sins. If Jesus is still dead today, then put your Bibles away, burn them, lock them up, whatever. It's pointless. You're wasting your time. You're dead in your sins if Christ is still in the grave but he's alive. And if Jesus is alive, then not only are your sins forgiven by believing in him, but you are completely set free from the bondage of sin and death. Not only are you forgiven of your sins, but you are empowered to live a new kind of life. You're empowered to live for Jesus and to reflect Jesus to the world made in God's image. Now by the power of the Holy Spirit, you reflect Jesus to the world. And by the Holy Spirit enabling us to live in this way, others can actually see our lives and say, this is what Jesus is like. This is what God is like. Becoming truly human, becoming fully human, being a, 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 a fuller picture of the, the, the nature and the character of God. By the power of the Holy Spirit, this is what God is like. They will see in us God himself doing what only God can do. Don't let him stand in the way of doing that. Or don't let anything stand in the way of God doing that in your life. Jesus didn't allow death to stand in his way for you. Death couldn't stop him. Run to him.
by faith. Your deepest needs are met in Jesus. Don't let anything stand in your way of coming to him today. He is able to help. And for those of you who have trusted in Jesus, maybe in your heart right now, you're just like, I'm wrestling with this. I want to do this. I'm scared. I don't know what people will think. That sliver of faith that you have. just want you to hold on to that. Say, Jesus, I know you can help me. I know that through this window of faith, I, I believe that if anyone can do anything, you can. And for those of you who have believed in Jesus for 90 years or 90 seconds, you can be confident that Jesus' words to you today, right now, is son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you have forgiven all sin, that you have forgiven all of our sin in the past. You've forgiven everything we ever will do against you. And God, we just long to live lives that reflect the glory and the love and the compassion and the mercy of Jesus. We want people to look at our lives and look at our families and look at our church and be able to say, this is what Jesus is like, not so that we will get the glory, so that people will know what you are like, so that you will get the glory, so that you will be exalted in Carpinteria, the coastlands and the nation, so that you will be the most beautiful thing that people in our lives will ever see. It's not about us. It's not about my righteousness. It's not about my holiness. It's not about our church or our plans or, or any of these things. It's about people seeing Jesus, even through that sliver of a window to be able to look in and see Jesus and know that God, you can help them, that you can heal them, that you can save them. God, I pray that if there's anyone here who doesn't yet know you, God, that in this time, they would recognize that 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 question that they've been asking about you, that concern that they have, that maybe you are who you say that you are. Maybe that brings fear. Maybe that brings excitement. Maybe that brings a whole host of things that I'm not aware of right now. But if that's, if that's that, that, that nagging thing about God, about Jesus, about scripture in the minds and hearts of these people, God, I pray that that little sliver of a window would just begin to open. That it wouldn't just be dirt falling through a roof. It wouldn't just be rays of light shining through, not just faces, not just hands, but it would be the avenue, the conduit through which people come to your feet and receive healing and forgiveness. God, forgive us of our sins. We believe that in your broken body and in your shed blood, our sins are forgiven, that we've been washed clean. God, I pray that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit to live like that's true, to believe that that's true and to live in light of the grace that we've received. Father, fill my brothers and sisters with your Holy Spirit. Empower us to believe and to receive these things and to celebrate you in this place. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.